Well, we come to New Year and also the beginning of a new series, and I always get kind of excited when we have a new series. Um, I, I like the old series. I really uh, thought the whole simple Christmas um, really you know, struck home with me, and I hope it did with you. But now we move to this new series, and we're going to go to the Old Testament, and it may be a, you know, a book um, that you haven't really studied a lot. Maybe you have. Maybe you kind of knew Ezra was in the Bible, but you didn't know what it was all about. And maybe you didn't know that, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually just one story, and they're very closely connected to, um, to Second Chronicles. In fact, the ending of Second Chronicles is the same verses as the beginning of Ezra and Nehemiah. But as I was thinking about, you know, what would be our first series of the year, I, I just, you know, thought about it, prayed about it, and, you know, this was the one that I thought, like, this is what, you know, I need to hear, and I think it's what we need to hear. Because this is the story of the return of the Israelites to, um, to Jerusalem. Now, let me ask you this, and some of you, you're not going to have an an answer because there is no answer, but um, some of you, you, you know, 70 years ago, where were you 70 years ago? Again, some of you, you're not even 20, so I get it. Stop showing off. Um, 70 years ago, where were you? Well, um, you know, for me, I'm haven't lived 70 years, so I can only go back 56 years. 56 years ago, I was in a place called Fairmont, West Virginia. That's where I was born. And, and we, you know, that town was a, a good 10,000 people. And when my dad became a pastor, we moved to the bustling metropolis of Wadestown, West Virginia, a total of 60 people. Six zero, and so fifty six years ago, that's that's where it was. You know, fifty three years ago, um, that we moved to Terrell, Oklahoma. So we went from the the town of sixty to the town of six hundred. So life in the big city was so different for us. You know, fifty three years ago, Terrell, Oklahoma, and then thirty five years ago in Eva Beach, Hawaii. If I go back to Fairmont. It looks pretty much the same. You can still go to where my grandparents had their insurance agency. Building's still there. It's no longer an insurance agency, but it's still there. Still looks pretty much the same. If I go to Wadestown, still the same. There's not much of a difference. You know, even if I go to Terrell, when, when we lived in Texas, we went up and visited. Every year they have a watermelon jubilee, or they used to. They haven't had it for years because the town's been kind of dying. But the town looks pretty much the same. Town of 600, a farming community, pretty much the same. What if you went back to where you were 70 years ago, or if you know, you're like me, you don't have 70 years yet, you go back to the place that, that you're from, that you grew up in, whether it was on another island or somewhere on the mainland, even for some of you, maybe another a country. And if you were to go back, as far back as you can go, you were to go back, what would it be like if you were to live there again? 
I think there would be two really important questions. Two really important questions. One is, how much has that place changed? Eva Beach, you know, real Eva Beach is what, where I grew up, not the new fake Eva Beach, which is like, um, you know, around there, which used to all be sugarcane. But real Eva Beach hasn't really changed. But everything around Eva Beach has changed. If I, like I said, if I go back to Terrell or Wadestown or Fairmont, you know, if anything, they've been kind of in decline, but pretty much looks the same. So the one question is, how much has the place changed? But the other question is, how much have I changed? Could I go back and could I live there again? The same thing with you, like, what if you were to go back to that place that you remember? How much has that place changed? And how much have you changed? See, when we, when we come to this, this story of Ezra and Nehemiah, one of the things we, we tend to do when we study the Bible, and it's, it's a huge mistake to make, but we do it all the time, is we tend to like compress time. We compress history. We act like, you know, Abraham, you know, is just right there, you know, right around the time of Moses. It's like, no, there's hundreds of years. You know, just think about that. That would be like if someone was trying to figure out what 21st century Americans in Hawaii was, were like, and they were, and they were looking at uh, 1600s, people in Hawaii in the 1600s. How close would they be? Uh, not close at all. And yet we do that all the time. We, we, just, we just compress time, and we, we say, well, I know the Old Testament context, and, you know, we're usually talking about you know, Abraham or Moses or maybe, you know, David. It's radically different. It spans not just hundreds of years, thousands of years. And so we, we compress time and we don't think even in this story, 70 years have passed. When Ezra and Nehemiah, when this story is here, it begins even before Ezra. By the time we get to Ezra, we're almost a century in. But the story begins with this story before Ezra goes back. And 70 years have passed. Plus, the place they left, they know it's not going to be the same because the last they saw, it was, they probably saw smoke as they were being taken off into Babylon, if they could look back, they probably saw their city burning. It's not going to be the same. Everybody they knew was either killed or they were taken into exile with them. And they're going to go back 70 years later. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to kind of do this is because, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah is because I think that's something that's going to happen to, to us as, as a church, not just our church, but, but Christians in general, that, that we're going to start to go back, you know, as people get the, the vaccines or, you know, they, they've, you know they, have, they have antibodies because they tested positive, they're going to go, they're going to start coming back 
And it's only been less than a year. So any kind of parallel that we see to 70 years, it, it, it doesn't seem like there would be much, but, but I will tell you, things have changed. You have changed. All of us have changed. And so we, if we're going to, to transition back, if we're going to come back, we want to do it with our eyes wide open. And we want to do it having learned from people that went through something much more traumatic than we did. And what we know is, again, COVID-19, that pandemic has changed so much of what we do and how we do it. What did you think Zoom meant in 2019? You meant, you thought it meant go really fast, right? Now everybody goes, oh yeah, I was Zooming last night. And we know exactly what they mean. Just a little word like Zoom changed just because of a, of a pandemic. You know, people who for years, you know, could not even program the time on their VCR are now getting online and, you know, connecting things that they, they just never thought was possible. I don't know if Keithy noise listening, but early on in the pandemic, it was, it was a sign of, you know, God's providence when he, when he attended one of our Waterhouse meetings on Zoom. And he was amazed, and we were amazed. So people have gone through, you know, different learning curves. You probably have, you know, things in your house you never thought you would, you would need. Things have changed in terms of, you know, just how people have grown. Some people, spiritually, have grown incredibly over the last few months. Others, it's been an incredible dry spell. It's going to be different. Things have changed. And so as we come to this text, and, and we're, we're looking again 70 years after Babylon, 70 years after Nebuchadnezzar had come and, and just conquered uh, Jerusalem, and Jerusalem kept rebelling, and finally Nebuchadnezzar just had enough, and he went in and he destroyed the temple, destroyed the walls. He said, no, never again. This is not going to be a problem. Well, those of you who come Wednesday nights, you know, we talked about the background here that really quickly after Nebuchadnezzar dies, Babylon falls. It only has this brief moment in history. It has less than a hundred years. It rises and then it falls, conquered by the Persians. And the, the leader of the Persians is, is Cyrus, and he's called Cyrus the Great. And most of us don't really know much about Cyrus, but we have to understand that, that Cyrus was not like other kings. He wasn't like other emperors. We're not sure why. History doesn't say why. You know, historians will always speculate and give theories, but we don't know why. We don't know why he seemed to care more about religious freedom and human rights than anybody before him and many people after him. We don't know why. We don't know why he was able to, like, organize his empire in such a way that he created stability that outlasted him went for several generations more. We don't know why. We don't know why his 
people, some of the people he had conquered, referred to him as father. And in fact, in the Bible, he's called the anointed one. Cyrus the Great was not just powerful. He was considered great. He's considered awesome. And it's that king, it's that king, that king of Persia that starts off this story. So in Ezra chapter 1, we read, In the first year of, king, of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So here's Cyrus. And of course, he's a little bit overstating. He hasn't conquered the whole world. He's conquered, you know, the known world that, you know, that, that, you know at that time. It's the largest empire that had ever been, you know, established at that point. The Roman Empire will be bigger, even, even larger than what Alexander the Great did. But we know there's a bigger world than he knew. Nevertheless, he was very powerful. But I want you to see what it says there. This most powerful man in the world, the Lord stirred up his spirit. God was in control. He was in control when Nebuchadnezzar was doing what Nebuchadnezzar did. There's a judgment on the people. He was in control when the Babylonians had power. And now he's in control. Right here. Right now. With Cyrus. The most powerful person in that part of the world. And it's God stirring up the spirit of Cyrus. It's not just that. It's Jeremiah prophesying that this would happen decades before. It's, it's not just that God looked down at his people and went, whoa, wait a minute, How, how'd this happen? You know, how did I blink and then Jerusalem got destroyed and... You know, the Jewish people got scattered. Is that what happened? No. The prophecy tells us this. This was always God's plan. He's not just making good of a bad situation. This is his plan. Cyrus was part of his plan. Make no mistake, Cyrus was also a warrior. Cyrus, in fact, you know, by most historical accounts, dies in battle trying to expand the empire even more. 
So don't get in your mind that, you know, necessarily that he's like, you know, some kind of, you know, Christian or something. But what we see here, the Bible tells us is that the Lord, Yahweh, is in control. That for better or worse, what you might think of your particular situation, it's part of God's plan. The Lord stirred. Well, if we keep reading, we see here it says, it says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bows of gold, 410 bows of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did, all these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Again, we're not 100% sure why you know, Cyrus did these things. We know the effect. And we know at least the kind of the practical idea. And what he f- seemed to feel is like, you know, a happy kingdom. You know, a happy kingdom means happy people. So if, if I can send these, you know, people back, if I can let them you know, have the freedom to, to kind of govern themselves, worship, you know, worship their gods in the way they see fit. It's just, it's just, it's just not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. And he does it. And he didn't just do it here. He didn't just do it for the Jews. He did it for a lot of other people that had been conquered. But what we see here with, the, with this particular um, situation, this particular story of the Jews, we see that God provides. He doesn't just say, you know, creates the way for them to go back. God provides. He provides the resources for his plan in his way. Understand all of that. God doesn't just have a plan. He does have a plan. But God also provides the resources for the plan in his way. And, and whether that's coming from, you know, the, the, the Jewish people who were in exile, you might think like, well, how, how did they have money? Well, it's... Because even under the Babylonians, even under the Babylonians, the, when they were brought as exiles, they weren't, they weren't oppressed. 
They weren't in slavery. In fact, for some of them, and we know this is true because the vast majority of Jewish people do not return to Jerusalem. Why would they not return? They're all free to go. Cyrus the king, if you read the decree, he said, hey, you all can go. But they don't all go. Why not? Well, first of all, it's been 70 years. For some families, it's been two or three generations. And Babylon hasn't been that bad. For a lot of them, they've, they've done quite well. They've prospered. They've taken power, you know, positions of power and influence. Why would you leave that? I mean, I'm not wanting to dismiss the tragedy of, of you having your, you know, your land wiped out and people you know, going in, you know, in exile. But even when they came to Babylon in exile, they were, they were amazed. Babylon was one of the most beautiful, technologically advanced cities. And this is really important because if you go and read this story and you read it not through 21st century eyes, but you read it in the time, at, you know, at this time, you would find this story comical. You would find it ridiculous because what's happening is, is that you're saying you people that were conquered, you weren't even hard to conquer. You were pretty easy, like, you know, smacking a fly. You have the audacity to say your God's in control of Cyrus. What are you, crazy? How can your God, who couldn't even protect you and your city, how could your God have any influence in anything that's happening in the world. We, we miss this because we read this like, you know, 21st century Christians. And we think, of course God was in control. At that time, no. How did we know back then whose God was most powerful? It's who won? And the Jewish people weren't winning. They had lost. And even the people they had lost to had already lost. And yet, they have prophecy and they have sacred writings that are saying, our God is in control of Cyrus the Great. It's, again, it's just mind-boggling to think that, you know, that that, that, that would be the case. But Nevertheless, it's, it's what's here and it's what helps us understand this idea that, that God is being, is being presented as, as not just the God of the Jews. He is the God of all creation. He is truly the Lord of all. And this return, it's, again, there's a lot of people that are just not going to go back. 
And we know, you know, we know why they're not going to go back. They're, they're not going to go back for the same reasons we wouldn't go back. If you've suddenly lived in this modern city, if you've lived in this place that's, that's full of this beauty and wonder, and you've, you've made a good life, why would you ever go back? And especially, especially, if you're not totally convinced in terms of what the Bible is presenting, which is God is Lord of all. You see, the, the Jewish people, it's, it's not a problem that was particular to them. We would all have this problem. As a matter of fact, we do. But what they had done was they, they had developed these kind of wrong understandings. And it's not illogical. Their understandings weren't illogical. They were just wrong. There, there's, you can have logically wrong, you know, conclusions. And, and what they thought was, they thought like God, you know, God had promised them this land and that it would be their land forever. And they believed that the city of Jerusalem was God's holy city and that God protected the city. And they believed the temple was, you know, that's God's house and that there's no way that would fall. And then it all falls. And they're taken away from it. Only the truly faithful, only the truly faithful, only the ones that really understand that God is indeed in control of all things are going to survive that. Everybody else is going to give in. Think about this. The Israelites engage in idolatry even when things are going really well in the promised land, how much more so would they be tempted to give in to idolatry when they've been conquered, their homeland destroyed, and they're in another land where the gods seem so much more powerful? A lot of them aren't going to come back. The vast majority are not going to come back. Some have prospered, and they're still faithful. And God is going to provide. God also provides through Cyrus. And we can see that Cyrus is taking this considerable treasure. This treasure is, was, is what is believed to have been in the temple, perhaps in the palace. And he's giving it to them. Doesn't have to do it, but he does. God is, again, providing. And from, from you know, their perspective, it could have been, it could easily have been like, well, that's not God providing, that's, that's Cyrus. That's not God providing, that's us. We're doing this. From their perspective, they certainly could have like falling into that same trap that I think we do sometimes. And you might think like, well, you know, why is God doing that? Why is he, you know, you know, providing that way? 
And I think part of the reason is because we miss this perspective that everything that exists is God's. And that everything that we have is just on loan from God. And everything that anyone else in the world has is God's. Which means God, at any point in time, can require it. We don't like to think that about our own lives. We don't like to think that about our own possessions, much less to think about it for everything else in the world. But it is. And to me, the, the miracle, the remarkable thing is when, not just when God's own people see needs and when God's own people step up and, and you know, provide the resources, that's amazing. And to me, that's a great act of God. But it's also somewhat expected for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But it's remarkable when those who aren't that way when God uses them by just, again, requiring what he's given on loan to them. See, even Persia, even the Persian Empire, it's just borrowing the space. It's just borrowing the stuff. We become, we become you know, so kind of like short-sighted when we think like, you know, this is... This is mine. This is ours. It's, it's forever. It's not forever. The Persian Empire is going to fall. Much of those holdings are, are going to be gone. And not just once, but multiple times. We, we have that same mindset. Whether it's about, you know, our house, our land, something that we own, we think like, this is mine. And we think like, I can pass this down on my family and it'll forever be mine. Ask the ancient Hawaiians about that. You don't even have to go back very far. A couple hundred years. Who's going to own this land in a couple hundred years? You? Me? United States? Who's going to own it? We don't know. And yet we approach things like, it's mine. It's ours. And we don't realize, no. It's just on loan for God. It's just on loan from God. And there's going to be times when he has his plan and the resources are required and he's not taking anything from you he's simply taking back that which has always been his yes Cyrus does this magnanimous thing of of giving these temple treasures back to the people but they weren't his to give it's a great thing he did more than most of us would. But it's still just God re reacquiring what was always his. Well, we read on here and we see it says, 
some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So we've just jumped, okay? We've gone from here they are in Babylon, and then boom, they're in Jerusalem. So remember, we, we tend to compress time. This journey would have taken months, okay? Um, you could do it faster, but not if you're moving a bunch of people, you know, a long way, and especially if they're not all soldiers, that you can make a march and things like that. So it would have taken months. But here we are. They come to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now, understand, when they come to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, they're not looking at a temple. They're looking at a pile of rubble. A pile of rubble that's been sitting there for about 70 years. It's not even a nice pile of rubble. You know, it's probably got plants growing in it, things like that. You know, when I was in um, Scotland, in St. Andrews, you know, that in St. Andrews, there's a, near the school that I went to, there's a, like a, used to be a Catholic kind of cathedral there. It's now a cemetery. But what happened after the Reformation is Catholicism kind of fell in popularity, to say it nicely, and, you know, the cathedral was abandoned. And so, good Scottish people are utilitarian, pragmatic. So what do you do? Well, you go and you, if you need some stones for your house, just go to the, go to the cathedral and take a few. And that's what they did. There's still, you know, enough where you can see the walls and, you know, that have crumbled, you know, but, but you know, that's hundreds of years. Seventy years, they're not coming back to looking at a temple that, you know, people are looking at it, you know, just a little paint and it'll be, it'll be just like new. No. The word it says, it says they have to erect it on its site. It has to be rebuilt. So you can imagine when they come back, especially those who remember, and those who remember, remember, it's 70 years. They must have been really young. But they still remember it. And I'm sure it made them weep. But it says, some of the heads of families, and I, and I think it's important that it says some. It doesn't say all. It says, some of the heads of families made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest's garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gateskeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. So... What's happening here? Well, again, they're seeing the temple and they, they understand, like, we got, we got to take care of this. It's one of the re- main reasons we came back. One of the things they couldn't do in, in Babylon is they, they couldn't really observe the, the temple worship the way it was supposed to have done. Now, that ended up being a good thing because what it forced them to do is it forced them to go back to the law. And if you remember, if you remember your, you know, Jewish history, then you know all of this is happening in the 6th century, 6th century B.C. 
We also know that something really significant happened just 20 years earlier. And what happens just 20 years earlier is there's the renovation. They're going to renovate the temple. So this is before Babylon's come along and destroyed everything. But King Josiah is a young king. He's probably, you know, little older teenager, young 20s. And, and they decide to renovate the temple. And in so doing, they find this weird book. And they don't know what it is. None of the priests know what it is. Nobody, none of the king's advisors know what it is. So they end up having to finally find someone totally outside. Holda, this woman. And she's able to tell them, that weird book, that's the book of the law. And some people think it was Deuteronomy. Get this. The priests had lost the Bible. And they had, it had been lost so long, they didn't even know it was lost. Think about that. Have you ever lost something so long that when you find it, you, you forgot you, you actually lost it? Like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, I remember, I remember when I couldn't find this and then I just forgot I even lost it. We're not talking like a little lapse, you know, a bad year. No, we're talking a long time for the collective memory of all these people to forget and to lose the law. And we know that Josiah, again, he, he, he realized it and, and he brings about this national repentance and then a recommitment to the covenant, a recommitment to the law. Now notice, this is only taking place about 20 years before Babylon's gonna come in and destroy everything. But it's so important that it did it at that point. Because what began right then, what began when, when Josiah led this national um, revival, when that happened, it set up what was going to happen in 70 years of exile. If they don't find that book, if they don't renew their covenant, renew their commitment to God's law, if they don't do that, when they go into exile, they very well could disappear from history. There would be, have been nothing that held them together. But in God's providence, even though the people had been repeatedly rebellious, in God's providence, he brings the law back to them just in time. Just in time so that when all of this judgment comes upon them from Babylon and they're in exile, they have the law and they focus on the law. And one thing we know is that true Judaism has never lost the Bible again. It's never lost the focus on the law again. They understood that what God was doing was not just saying, hey, I want you to have this temple and throw these parties for me. That's what, that's what the Greeks did. Let's throw parties for our gods, which also meant, you know, we get to drink a little and eat a little. 
No, not what it was. That God cares about our hearts and he cares about how we, how we treat one another. And now they're reconnected to it. And so even though they're in exile, there's this, this group, this, this remnant. And that's what we find here. It says some of the heads. It doesn't say all of them. And if we go back to the previous section, it doesn't say everyone came. In fact, as I said, most people will not return. But God used the faithful and the obedient. He used the faithful and the obedient. The faithful and the obedient. They're the ones who said, all right. This is a free will offering. This is not some leader saying, hey, give to my building campaign. This is people seeing what needs to be done. And as a, as a free will offering, giving and doing whatever they need to to have this temple rebuilt. God uses the faithful and the obedient. Again, wasn't, it wasn't easy to leave Babylon. It's not like when they left Egypt. They weren't being asked to make bricks out of straw and then not given any straw. Okay? No, it wasn't like that at all. It was hard to leave. It was comfortable. And I'm being careful not to draw too many pan, you know, parallels to the pandemic. And so this may not apply to you, but some of you, you've gotten really comfortable about coming to worship services in your pajamas and, you know, not... You know, it's kind of nice. You know, I just get up, turn on the computer, it's good. Now, I will tell you, there are exceptions, and you might be the exception. My daughter, Keiko, when, at least when she attends our services, when she's here, and, and she attends them at home, except last week when she sang, but she always gets dressed up for church and sits in our living room <laughs> dressed up for church watching, right? She still gets ready, right? But it's gonna, be, it's gonna be hard. It's easier to deal with church people when you don't have to hang around them, right? When I can just send them a card here and there, a text or a little message, but when I gotta like see them every day and hear them and I actually have to get to know them, yeah, it's so much more comfortable. There's gonna be some people that they just, they don't want to leave. And that's how it was here. But here's the good thing that they learned. What they learned in the exile, especially those who are faithful and obedient, what they learned is that, is that God is everywhere. Their God was not just the God of, of the promised land, not just the God who was in Jerusalem or in the temple. That's a small God. This God was in Babylon. This God could be loved and worshipped no matter where they were. And this God, this God expected faithfulness and obedience no matter where they were. 
They learned it. And for those who got it and were faithful and obedient, it's awesome. Because it's like mind-blowing. We can go anywhere in the world and God is there. And we can worship. And we can live for him. For those who don't want to be obedient, for those who don't want to be faithful, it's the opposite. It's really bad news. Because now I don't have an excuse. God is everywhere. I can't say like, ooh, I'm not going to, you know, I don't have to obey God over here because he doesn't, he doesn't go to this place. And so that problem, that problem of putting all their trust in the temple, all their trust in the walls of the city, all their trust in thinking that God would never let his holy city fall, all of those wrong beliefs are gone. And in their place is something so much more powerful. True faith, true covenant, true relationship with God. Again, I, I really resist doing, you know, when I, when I preach from the Old Testament, I really resist drawing too many parallels because I think that can get us in trouble. But I think we can see principles here for sure. And we, can, we also can know that, that God is everywhere and that, and that God uses the faithful and the obedient and that God has a plan and, and he provides for his plan in, in, in whatever way he sees fit. That, that whatever we think is happening in our nation, the politics, in the world, that it's not out of his control. And I guess the question we should continue to ask, even as we're you know, thinking about what this year is going to be as we transition from whatever it was in 2020 to what it's going to be in, in the next you know, 12 months, is you know, what about us? What have we learned? What are we continuing to learn? Has our relationship with Christ become stronger? Has our faith become stronger? Has our, has our desire to, to, to be that healthy church that he called us to be, has that gotten stronger? Has our desire to, to just to do like kingdom work and to see our church making a difference for the kingdom, has that gotten stronger? Have we lost some of those things that we substituted for Christianity, for our relationship with God? Maybe our relationship with God was based on the fact that we could come to this place. Maybe it was, you know, certain times of the week that we gathered for different things, Bible studies and things like that. And, and instead of having a relationship with God, we were having a relationship with a worship service or with a place or with a group of people. And has that helped us say, my primary relationship is going to be with God and my trust is going to be in Him. And that's going to help us know whether we can be the church, where we can still be the church, even be a better, stronger church when everything is different. 
when our focus is on God, when our focus is on Jesus Christ, then we know no matter what the years ahead bring, no matter how the world changes, we can be the church. And we have confidence. As Christians, we have this added confidence that the Jewish people didn't have. They didn't have it yet. They were going to be, they were going to have it and there was going to be offered to them in about 500 years. But they didn't have it yet, but we have it. And we read about it in Romans chapter 8. Paul writes this. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not the situation. It's not whether we're in exile or not. It's do we know the love of Christ? Are we going to be faithful and obedient no matter what the situation is? Let's pray.